Listener Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. Today we're talking about the groundwork being laid for this historic, never done before meeting between the US and North Korea's leader, Kim Jong-un, this week in the headlines. The US Secretary of State, uh, Mike Pompeo, who used to be the head of CIA, has been over there. He's been doing all the negotiating, laying the groundwork. Keith, is this standard procedure? I guess there is none considering we've never had such a meeting like this. Well, certainly we've never had a meeting before between a North Korean leader and an American president. The big issue, I think, here is the way in which the meeting has come about and the fears a lot of people have got about Trump's inability to cope with international diplomacy. If you think back to how it all began a few weeks ago, there were a South Korean delegation at the White House um, who were just trying to bring people up to date with what was going on between North Korea and South Korea, the Winter Olympics, all that. And Trump said, oh... Well, if they're in the White House, I want to meet them. Bring them up here. And the staff said, oh, no, no, you're going to meet them tomorrow. They've first of all got to talk to your national security staff. And Trump said, no, I'm not waiting. Bring them up now, immediately. So they arrived and the South Koreans rather sheepishly said, look, we understand that there is an invitation that could be made to meet with the North Korean leader. And Trump said, I'll meet. I'll make the announcement now. So there are white faces in the White House. You see, generally speaking, the way the game is played, the meeting the American president is the last thing you do. It's the icing on the cake. Um, so you have all this sort of preliminary work that gets done lower down the food chain. And then at the very end, you have a meeting between the president and another head of state. Now, if you, if you take the North Korean case, President Clinton um, thought of having a meeting with the North Korean leader. Madeleine Albright, who was then the Secretary of State, was sent to North Korea to have negotiations with the father of the current leader. And she came back and said, no, the conditions are not right. So the meeting fizzled out. Until the recent drama, that was the highest level contact between an American official and a North Korean leader. The visit two decades ago of Madeleine Albright to North Korea. Now, what Trump has done is to cut through all of those formalities. Luckily, some of the adults in the White House said, look, you just can't go into a meeting with the North Korean leader. You've got to have some preliminary work done. The best example of this preliminary work being done was, in fact, in the early 1970s, when Henry Kissinger was privately negotiating with the Chinese leadership. And he was the US Secretary of State was, at the time. He was the US Secretary of State at the time. And who was the president? And President Nixon. So Nixon had made a reputation for being anti-Chinese. So that's how he came to prominence in the late 1940s, being against communism, right? So here you have an extreme right-wing president who's getting mugged by reality while he's in the White House because the Americans wanted to get out of Vietnam, but it had to be peace with honour. They just couldn't cut and run. So they had to find a mechanism by which they would withdraw. But the Vietnamese were just going to grind them down into the ground in this long, at that time, a very long-running war. And so Henry Kissinger, who's a brilliant negotiator, not that I always agree with him, but, you know, the guy's smart, he said, well, look, what we should do is just talk to the Chinese and play the Chinese card off against the Russians and also to get the Chinese to come in on our side against the Vietnamese. This is Henry Kissinger's standard 
politics. You know, you get one playing off against another. To carry that out, it had to be done in top secret. So Henry Kissinger was in Pakistan and then the announcement was made he's come down with an upset tummy, which is standard, of course, when you're in Pakistan and (laughs) India. In fact, he hadn't. He had boarded a plane under top secrecy, flown to China and negotiated for Nixon to visit China the following year and then came back, obviously, still under wraps. No one knew what had happened except his immediate staff. Um, and nobody questioned it because, you know, everybody gets sick in, <laughs> when you're travelling in Asia. So, it, it, But then the announcement was made and Nixon, of course, visited China, one of the most, well, it's even the subject of an opera now, you know, it's one of the most momentous events. So here you had Henry Kissinger, the Secretary of State, negotiating a meeting between Richard Nixon, who'd made his reputation of being anti-Chinese, anti-Chinese communist, um, but then also the Chinese leadership had made their name by being anti-American. So suddenly uh, there was turmoil amongst political parties. Right-wing political parties were thrown off balance and at the same time left-wing. They've got their great leader, Chairman Mao, negotiating with the great enemy, President Nixon. So that created absolute turmoil when the meeting took place. So that's why this uh, Nixon-Chairman Mao meeting is so historic. And, of course, it's then opened up um, China to the world. And, of course, um, Chairman Mao died four years later and then subsequent people improved their economic context. So it was a breakthrough. And what? Did, how did the public in America react back then? Because, obviously, they voted him in knowing full well <laughs> that he was anti-Chinese. So yeah. what, how did they react to it all? Well, there was turmoil, absolute turmoil everywhere, although he was able to say we need to do this in order to get out of Vietnam, although they didn't get driven out of Vietnam for another three years. But they certainly did open up China. And there was a huge China lobby, both in favour of being trading with China because of the market, uh, but it it caused pandemonium. Here in Australia, Gough Whitlam had made a trip to China and been heavily criticised by the then Australian Prime Minister, Bill McMahon, Billy McMahon, um... And yet, uh, shortly after Gough Whitlam returned, Whitlam did not know that Henry Kissinger was also about to head into town. So Whitlam comes back, gets criticised by the Australian government for being disloyal to the Americans and the Australians, and then the announcement is made. And William McMahon, Billy McMahon, the Australian Prime Minister, appears to be an idiot because not even the Americans are, are taking him into their confidence. So it's really, you know, one of these really dramatic changes. And I think Trump probably doesn't know his history all that well, but certainly, you know, we're talking about something potentially this significant, not that North Korea is going to be a great market for American produce or anything, but remember, North Korea is one of Trump's major foreign policy crises. It's not a problem of his own making. He inherited it from Obama, who inherited it from Bush, who it had inherited originally from Clinton, right? So it's run on down for the last quarter of a century. But it's in Trump's time in the White House that North Korea will have nuclear weapons capable of reaching the mainland of the United States. Let's quickly revisit that then, just so we all have an idea of the history behind it. How did Bill Clinton inherit the North Korea problem? Well, because North Korea then embarked upon acquiring nuclear weapons. So the the risk for North Korea is that they think of themselves as being under constant threat from the Americans, the Japanese and the South Koreans, and they have to their North China and Russia, and they're not sure if they're reliable allies. They're the ones who talk to Henry Kissinger, don't forget. So that's that's all part of this. If you're like, if you're a North Korean leader, you're very worried 
that you're you're boxed in by people who are either out to get you or at the very least are not going to be reliable allies. So he figured, look, if we can acquire nuclear weapons, which they started to do, perhaps buying them from Pakistan, uh, the technology, uh, perhaps developing it themselves. Remember, North Korea is what's called an autarkic economy. An autarkic economy means that it's completely controlled by the government, which is amazing. It's a dirt poor country, but they can make nuclear weapons. Why? Because they just simply starve their people. They put the money into the military rather than into feeding the people. In a society like Australia, the Australian government is only one entity running the economy. You've got the big corporations, you've got you know the shopping outlets, etc. In North Korea, everything is controlled by the government. And so it was possible, therefore, for the North Koreans to acquire their own nuclear weapons, and they began to do that explicitly. We had doubts about it occurring before, but certainly explicitly at the time that Clinton was in the White House. So it's a quarter of a century ago. So it's been this slowly moving program, an ambition of the North Koreans. We think the North Koreans are now speeding up that program because they're buying stuff from Ukraine. There's a Russian factory very close to the border with Western Ukraine, and the Russians have moved their facilities out, but the factory is still there. So the factory is looking for new customers and they've now found it perhaps in North Korea. Over the years, have they exercised more diplomacy? Obviously, they're quite paranoid because they control everything themselves and they're surrounded by enemies. But have they sort of, do they understood the importance of diplomatic relationships with other countries and what it can do for them? Well, they have very poor diplomatic relations with most other countries. So Australia has struggled to maintain diplomatic relations. So we've had an embassy in Canberra, which I think at the moment is at the moment empty. So, you know, we, we, we have this on-off relationship with North Korea. Um, a good way always of opening up countries is through trade. But the North Koreans, you know, treat tourists very badly. Remember, we had that tragic episode of the young American who died, uh, well, was very gravely ill in North Korean custody and sent home to to die. So not even trade is opening up the country very much because they are paranoid. They, their citizens get a very limited view of what's going on in the outside world. The more tourists that you have going around your country, the more there is a risk that these people will learn from what is going on in the outside world. So even if they do open up, Keith, um, and this meeting with America is a success and therefore there's more trust gained in the country and there are better diplomatic relationships that come out of it. The reality is that this country will open up at some point and how dangerous is that for the regime? You can't keep everyone in the dark forever. No, and that's going to be their real problem. So the North Korean leadership is very well aware of what has happened in the Soviet Union. So the Soviet Union, uh, Mr Gorbachev, tried to liberalise and the whole thing fell apart. It's a bit like unravelling a, a woolen garment. You just pull up one thread and then bit by bit the whole of the garment just unravels. And that is what happened, obviously, in the old Soviet Union. Um, and it's the fear the North Koreans have got. It's also, by the way, the fear the Chinese have got, which is why they are increasing their control over society. Um, and so um, the North Korean leadership must be very worried um, that if they try to do too much too quickly in terms of liberalisation, the dynasty will be overthrown. I mean, even just looking across the border from North Korea into South Korea, it's got this huge thriving metropolis, so many colours and billboards and vending machines and, you know, everything. You may go to Japan and Tokyo, it's the same sort of thing. I mean, these these cities are in your face. Yeah. For North Korea to go from nothing, you know, a civilization that's probably backwards 100 years, uh, to 
to even seeing the way that South Korea lives kilometres away. Absolutely. And so it will be a challenge for the North Koreans. Now, the Vietnamese are going through this. It's Doi Moi, their version of Perestroika. And that is very uh, slowly taking hold. And, of course, since uh, the death of Chairman Mao in China, we've had an improvement, obviously, in sort of economic liberalisation within China, with the regimes in both China and Vietnam still in place. And that obviously must be the ambition of the North Korean leader. This is Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking today about this historic meeting that is taking place or going to take place in a couple of weeks or months between US President Donald Trump and Kim Jong-un, the leader of North Korea. This is an un precedented move on the US part. And at the moment, um, top level negotiations are going, uh, are taking place between Mike Pompeo, who is now the new Secretary of State in the US, and I would imagine the top levels of the North Korean government. What kind of conditions would they be laying down, Keith? Well, an obvious one is when are they going to meet and where, right? So an American president never travels lightly. So um, you have an advance guard. So when President Clinton visited us here in Sydney, for example, the advance guard, uh, which had come out months beforehand, uh, needed at, at all time the president has to be near a hospital in case something happens to him. Uh, so when they went out to the nearest Sydney hospital, which is the University of Sydney Hospital, they were horrified to see there were no armed guards at the hospital, we don't have armed guards in Australia. So that was one of the changes that had to be brought in. So for the duration of Clinton's time here in Sydney, which was only a couple of days, um, nonetheless, we had armed guards around the, the hospital just in case the man were, was taken sick and you needed to rush him to the hospital. So this is the sort of preparation that goes on um, all the time. And in ways that the average person simply could not imagine. Very different from a parliamentary system. So in the UK, New Zealand, Canada, uh, Australia, Prime Minister simply is the first among equals. Prime Minister. That's how the title originated almost 300 years ago. Um, Whereas in the United States, the president is actually the king. And so everything revolves around the president. So the president can listen to the views of the cabinet and say, right, thank you for your views, I'm ignoring them. And Abraham Lincoln on a very famous occasion did that, ignored the entire cabinet. In Australia, you do that, you're going to get rebelled and removed by your own cabinet, as Mrs Thatcher found out, right? It's a very different way of thinking about politicians. You know, our prime minister is currently out of the country as we speak, no big deal. Whereas when the president leaves the United States, this huge press corps follows him around and all the security detachments and all the rest of it. So for a president to meet overseas, it's a major logistical uh, thing. Uh, So obviously there must be a lot of work going into where they will be, where they will meet and under what conditions. These are just sort of basic logistic things. Before the president can even move, his security staff and all the rest of it need to be assured that he can leave the White House, right? And that's your daily task sorting out the logistics. And then on top of that, you've got the actual agenda. Remember, there is no peace treaty as a result of the Korean War. We have a ceasefire that is in place. So the ceasefire means simply that you are not allowed to have North Koreans firing at South Koreans, Americans firing at North Koreans. That's all it is, negotiated in 1973. No peace treaty could be finalised in 1973 because the then South Korean leadership insisted that all of Korea be united. And that was simply not on the cards. 
And so for that reason, no peace treaty could be finalised. What Trump is aiming for is to have a proper peace treaty. Um, Now, it may well be that part of the peace treaty will be the removal of American forces from South Korea uh, as a quid pro quo for North Korea getting rid of its nuclear weapons. Another variation um, is that Uh, because they've already got nuclear weapons, that Trump will say, "Okay, get rid of your long-range weapons, but we'll allow you to keep your short-range missiles, which is what's worrying China. Remember, we've just had the Japanese prime minister in Washington negotiating with Trump because he was horrified when he got the news (laughs) about this surprise meeting between Trump and the North Korean leader. So he hurried off to Washington because his concern is that there may well be a deal whereby, sure, the Americans are secure from a long-range nuclear threat, but Japan will not be. Japan is an old enemy, was the old imperial power, and there is still bad blood between the North Koreans and the Japanese. But would Trump sign away the um, rights of denuclearization entirely by simply saying, all right, just get rid of the long-range missiles. America's all right, but you can keep your short-range missiles, in which case they're going to attack South Korea, which is unlikely, or Japan, which is a risk. So how long do you think this process of negotiation will happen? When could this meeting actually occur? Well, they're talking about May or June, which is far too soon for the way that negotiations work because you just don't rock up like you're doing a real estate negotiation, which is what Trump thinks he's doing, right? You know, Trump has got to realise that every word he utters, as long as he's in the White House, every word he utters is very carefully monitored, it's checked out, the nuances, etc. Um, you know, I've worked in this environment for decades and you look at every word. Now, Trump issues these tweets in the middle of the night... <laughs> And middle of the day, and really not thinking through. Now, every tweet he issues is an official statement by the head of state of the United States. And some of the tweets are just contradictory. We don't even know where he stands on the issues because he's just continually moving around. That's why there is this phrase that you hear about adults in the White House, because you've got to have people around Trump who can advise him what to do. But Trump's problem is he thinks he doesn't need to listen to advice. He's getting himself into all sorts of problems because he really hadn't gone through the same sort of preparation that uh, Obama and Clinton went through. Bush, of course, was lucky because his father had been in the White House so he could get hints from his his late mother and, and his father. But Trump did not speak to experts, did not get the briefings on how a president should operate. So, for example, just going off at a a slight angle, dealing with the new Comey book. So Comey was head of FBI, uh, sacked by Trump. The way that Trump talked to him was a way that a president cannot talk to the head of the FBI, just treating him like a political colleague. So Trump did not realise that, whereas Clinton, Obama and Bush would have realised there are certain boundaries that you cannot cross when you are a president. Trump has not recognised that. He does not listen to advice and he's just digging himself deeper and deeper into a hole on a number of issues. (laughs) And of course, the worry now is that he'll go to meet this North Korean leader, come up with some sort of crazy deal, alienate the Japanese. The Japanese will say, oh, here we are, we're being betrayed by the Americans. We've now got to up our own military expenditure. We could end up with a military arms race immediately to our north. So this is a watch my space type scenario. Absolutely. As always, absolute pleasure. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Liv Proud 
Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.